We want to open the Bible together. I I say that almost every week, but I want to draw your attention to at least one quick thing that I also want to be uh, better at including you and thinking about. When I say that the Holy Spirit opens us, when I say that the Bible opens us, I want to cast a little bit of vision of what this looks like and and maybe, maybe kind of calm any fears that are even rising in you. So this is what this means. Sometimes when we open the Bible and someone begins to teach, it begins to feel as though someone is speaking directly to you. And one of two things is possible here, okay? One of two things. Either the Holy Spirit miraculously has used a flawed vessel like me to speak something relevant and, and truthful through the teaching of the Scripture, or the alternative is I hacked your email, right? And I've been following you, and I've been thinking of just exactly what to say to mess with you once you got here, okay? So those are your two options. Either the Holy Spirit is, is working and actually speaking a direct word to you and to me, and that might make us feel uncomfortable, kind of like you, you, find, you might find yourself sitting there when someone's teaching the Bible, and you might find yourself going like, is he talking to me? It sure feels like he singled me out there. And, and it's either the Holy Spirit working to shape you and draw you to himself, or I'm a stalker. So here's where you get to decide. Isaiah chapter 9, let's open up together. Let's begin reading there, and I want to lay out a course starting now as we celebrate Advent and a word I want to cast out there for you to begin to contemplate. I don't necessarily care that you use this word ever again, but we use it a lot in the life of the church as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. And the word we would use is the word incarnation. That is that God became flesh. In incarnation, the, the pieces of that word kind of show up in, in, in some common vernacular for us, the, the word carne or we, we use it to say in, in the Bible later, is like something is carnal, that is of the flesh. And so we, when we say that Jesus became incarnate, that is God was incarnated in Jesus Christ, the God, Father, became flesh. Flesh, we, we would say like meat, right? So, so if you go get a taco, you're going get, to get the carne asada, or you're going to get the carnitas. Get that? That means meat. That means flesh. Carnitas, little pieces of meat, right? And now for you who are, are, uh, are vegetarians in the room, I apologize. I know I've offended you with that, with that example. It's just the best I got. So the flesh that we see in Jesus Christ, the humanity, the finite nature of God made, made visible for us in Jesus, that God being infinite in nature emptied his qualities to do what God could not do in his divinity and, and he became man and died he did the one thing that god eternal cannot do and that is to die so that jesus the man the god man the incarnate one could do the one thing that human being a human being could never do and that is to come back from the dead and so we celebrate here about 700 years before the birth of jesus in isaiah chapter 9 a prophet speaks to a king and to a people like you and i beginning in verse 1 Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff For his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I pray that God begins to speak to you through me, to all of us, and shape us in the reading and explaining and teaching of His Word. But as we begin to think about this, what I think you might find to be a fairly cryptic and mysterious text, I've got to give you a sense of a setting for the book of Isaiah, specifically uh, chapter 9. So I've got to give you kind of a crash course in Old Testament history and give you a, a crash course in the prophet Isaiah. So here goes. This, this takes place about 700 years before Jesus was born. About 700 years before. And if, if you kind of want to dig into other places in the Bible, I, I'll even give you what I think are some helpful ways to understand this from a different perspective. But a prophet by the name of Isaiah was called out by God to speak to Judah, to God's people at this particular time. Now a lot's happened in the course of the Old Testament, by the time we make it to the prophet Isaiah. You see, the story begins, as we know, with Adam and Eve in a perfect garden. They had, they had one job, in which was to simply be God's people, chosen, and in, his, and in His own presence they would live, and they would be gardeners for the glory of God. And their one simple task was to simply enjoy being creatures, being the creation of the Creator. But they were tempted by the enemy to be more than just a creature, to want to throw off their limits, to want to be superhuman. And so they rebel against God in order to be like God. So they're cast out, they begin to wander, and the story begins to unfold. And it's beautiful how God doesn't simply abandon them and give up on them, but He begins, he begins to restore them, and, and He chooses out of this whole lot of people, a man by the name of Abram or Abram. We begin to know him after a promise is given to him by God as Abraham. He creates a nation of his people. Then, as they find themselves on a regular basis in their own rebellion and sinfulness and in some pretty unfortunate circumstances, they're under captivity in Egypt where God sends another person to deliver them to to demonstrate his goodness. And a man by the name of Moses comes out in the book of Exodus. We see how he leads God's people to a new place. And now that they're a chosen, delivered, and redeemed people, they need to know how it is that they're supposed to be God's people here on the earth. And so God gives them a law. He gives them a, a set of principles we know as, as the Ten Commandments. Even unfolded further later in Leviticus, we see that what it looks like to be God's people is to live by principles and live differently than the way that the world lives you would think well now that they know what they're supposed to do now now they'll do it but they don't they continue to rebel against God and and then they even begin later to cry out to God and they say God we we don't want to be just your people we don't want you to be our king anymore we want an actual king we want a flesh and blood king and God says to them you don't want that if I give you a king like the other nations, he'll take your children, he'll take them to war, they'll die for his purposes. He won't be a perfect king. He'll begin to exploit you for the sake of his kingdom. I don't think you want this. And there's a beautiful, uh, one of my favorite books in the entirety of the Bible, Judges. I encourage you to read it. If you're reading through the Bible with the rest of us this next year, read it with caution. Um, because as with most cases of humanity, there's kind of like 99 things that you probably shouldn't do and think, ooh, that's a good thing. That's a good lesson of what not to do. And one, maybe out of, out of the mix of things you should. And the book of Judges is just that. In fact, there's a refrain throughout the entirety of the book of Judges. It goes something like this. It says that, and there was no king in Israel, and so people did whatever they saw was right. They, they didn't do what was right in the sight of the Lord, but they did just whatever they thought was right at the time. And so you've got some good judges, and you've got some bad judges. And most of the time, you just have bad judges who stumble upon some good things every once in a while, right? Think Samson, great, mighty warrior who had a weak spot for a girl, right? So he's like, great guy, but a sucker. 
And so there's this sense in which, because there's no king, this is what people did. And it sets the stage for First and Second Samuel, and the people cry out to God for a king. And they pick out a king, and God anoints him, and his name is Saul. And they pick a king like you and I would pick. He's bigger, taller, and stronger than anyone else. The greatest warrior they had known at this particular point. And they said, you should be our king. But you know what happens with people with power? The power goes to his head. And he begins to think of himself not just as a king who's entrusted with the care of God's people, but he thinks of himself as a priest, a mediator mediator to, to represent God. And as he goes in and defiles the temple, going where only the priest was allowed to go, he sets the stage for the fall of his own kingship. And then God selects a new king, not the kind of king you and I would pick. He picks a humble king, a man by the name of David. I should say boy by the name of David, a, a boy out taking care of his father's flock. And you know what happens there? God anoints him, and, and he goes up, and he, he slays the, the giant Goliath, and then he is anointed as king. He becomes the king, and you think, well, now we're in good shape. Now we've got a good king. But you know what happens then? One of his mighty men, the men that were entrusted to, to care for David, a man by the name of Uriah, the first opportunity as they're out fighting the king's war that David gets, he steals Uriah's wife and kills Uriah to cover the evidence. So then, after David comes the next king, a son of David by the name of Solomon. And Solomon, again, messy little guy, takes everything that at heart his heart would desire, does not deny himself any treasure, any pleasure, any experience. And as a result, the idolatry in his own heart divided his kingdom into Judah and to Israel. And these people fought back and forth against one another and against the people around them. And that's where we find ourselves here. This kind of roller coaster of people's kind of obedience to God, him, him faithfully drawing them back to himself, and then they rebel against him again. We're, we're at this point in the roller coaster where the people are now divided, the, the political implications, the, the physical and actual consequences of their own idolatry and sin are visible in the division of these kingdoms. And now that they're divided, they're vulnerable, and their enemies are surrounding them to destroy them. And so I want to draw your attention to something. This is maybe the best way that that I can illustrate this for you. I don't know if you like maps. I love maps. I think visually and spatially, and so this is helpful for me. So this is where we find ourselves in this story. Speaking of Judah, the capital city being Jerusalem, God's chosen people. Whenever you think Judah, just think David, the lineage of David. When you think Israel, the other part of God's people, think not David. And in Judah, they tried as hard as they could to keep someone who was in the lineage of David to be king as best they could. But outside of Judah, it was kind of run by warlords. So whatever tribe had the most power and influence at that time kind of became king. And some of them got killed, and some of them were king for very short periods of time. And the king in Judah at this particular time is a man by the name of Ahaz. And at this particular time, there's something going on between some important political movements. First one you'll see directly north of Judah is Syria. Syria at this particular time is an empire that's expanding, but northeast of them is another empire, the Assyrian Empire, also expanding. And they're piece by piece taking over parts of, at this point, the known world. And the Syrians, as you can see by the geography of the map, are sitting where the Israelites, the people of Israel, ought to own for themselves. You see, the people of Israel have have gotten into a deal with the Syrians, the Syrian empire. And and what they would like to do is to take over as much as they could because the Israelites don't simply want to be loyal to God and his king, but they just kind of want whoever has power. So they're kind of pseudo-conquered, but also begin to partner with the Syrians who want to expand, and they are conspiring to destroy Judah. They're on their way to destroy Judah. And King Ahaz has a choice. He can either fight against the Syrians or he can partner with the Assyrians, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And he can partner with the Assyrians, pagan people, not God's people, for the sake of defending himself, saving his own skin. And so he seeks out 
You can go, if you want to, to uh, Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah chapter 7 begins to uncover what it is that God is going to do. And Isaiah is sent by God to tell something amazing to King Ahaz. He says in in chapter, uh, in chapter 7, you'll see here at the very beginning, God does something amazing. He sends, uh, he sends to Ahaz, Isaiah, and gives them a warning. It says in verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son. So Isaiah does that. He goes and he meets them. And in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord speaks through Isaiah to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, that is hell or the depths, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And so as he's contemplating whether he should partner with the Assyrians or whether he should listen to God, who says in verse 7, thus says the Lord your God, it shall not stand, speaking of the Syrian, the Syrian conspiracy, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, these are the people of Israel that have begun to conspire with the Syrians, will be shattered from being a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So get the picture. Ahaz wants to, to get a foreign pagan group of people to help protect his own in, in, interests to defend himself from the Syrian invasion. And the Lord says to him, don't do that. Don't, don't align yourself with the Assyrians. Because what they're doing will come and go. It will disappear. It will not exist. And he says in verse 10, if you don't believe me, Ahaz, ask for a sign and I'll give it to you. Ask for a sign and I will prove to you that I will deliver you. I will save your people. And no matter what happens, even, it, even if it looks like things are coming to an end, even if it becomes dark and awful, I will give you a sign that I will be present with you and I will not leave you. And God invites Ahaz to ask God for a remarkable sign. Ahaz refuses. We see here in verse 10, it says Ahaz is called to, to ask God for a sign. He doesn't want to, but in verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you, too weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. You hear that? He's gonna, you don't want a sign. You don't want to trust God. He's going to give you a sign anyway. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Literally, God with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings that you now dread will be deserted. Did you get this? God gives a promise and he says, I'm going to give you a sign. And Ahaz refuses the sign that God is really present. We find out here the context seems to imply that there was a, possibly an actual virgin at this particular point who, who gave birth to a child as like a precursor, a symbol to what we celebrate in Christmas. And we don't know that. It doesn't say that. And the reason we don't know that is because whether it happened or not didn't matter for the purpose of Ahaz because he had closed his eyes to listening to God anyway. And even though the very name that God says will be a sign is an indicator of his presence with his people, Ahaz does not believe that it's true. In fact, the end of the story is that he makes a deal with the Assyrians. Everything goes awfully. Things fall apart. And everyone pays for it. And what happens after that is one of the darkest periods in the history or in the story of God's people, Israel. Awful ending, right? Refuse the sign of God's presence. And I want you to see here as we dig through chapter 9, on this setting here, some important principles that Ahaz teaches us. Principles, I think, that teach us to expect something different this Christmas. That's this, that the greatest danger 
is that you will replace God with something else. The call of this section of the prophet Isaiah, from chapter 7 to to chapter 12, is to trust God, not Assyria. Trust God. Don't trust Assyria. Trust in God. And so God gives a promise through his prophet to tell King Ahaz, it's going to be okay. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to give you a sign so that you know that you can trust me. That even though things might look awful, I haven't abandoned you. But Ahaz falls prey to something that I believe is just as important for us to consider today as it was 700 years before Jesus even stepped foot onto the earth. We are tempted on a regular basis to trust anything other than God and to find our hope in anything other than God's promises. I want you to see how this ends. If you will, read with me at the, the setting for chapter 9 is, is in the, a couple of verses before, the last verses of chapter 8. So I, Isaiah chapter 8, the prophecy seems to uncover that the Assyrians are going to actually turn against Ahaz and, and what he thought was going to help his people ends up destroying them and destroying, destroying their offspring for, for generations to come. And they begin to look for hope. In verse 21, it says that they will pass through the land. Speaking of, speaking of the way that judgment will come, they will pass through the land. This is my favorite part. Greatly distressed and hungry. Uh, so some commercials tapped into this new word called hangry. It's actually biblical. It's a biblical phrase. I don't know if you caught that. They were distressed and hungry. In case you missed it, it says, and when they were hungry, they were enraged. Get it? One of the greatest weaknesses that, that in our human frailty that makes us vulnerable to believing and trusting in things other than God is our own earthly lust and hunger for other things. It's not irrelevant. When they were hungry, they were enraged and they says, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And then they'll turn their faces upward. It says that they, in verse 22, they'll look to the earth for their hope, for their salvation. They'll look to the earth. They'll look around them. Whether it's to the Assyrians for their deliverance or to something else, it says they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Did you catch that? They, they had a promise that God was going to deliver them, but instead of believing that God was actually going to be with them and for them, they looked for something else for comfort. Instead of finding their rest and hope in God, right? And this is a, a recurring theme I just kind of ran through for you. People rebel, God delivers them. People rebel, God delivers them. People rebel, God delivers them. They find a new way to rebel, and God delivers them over and over and over again. And so there's even phrases that throughout the Old Testament, you hear these remembrances of God deliver, God's deliverance. Right? One of our favorite, we, we, we sing in the second verse of Come Thou Fount of, ev of Every Blessing, right? Here I raise my Ebenezer. That literally just means rock of help. I know that's not a word we use very often but it was an altar. It was a, a place that they were meant to commemorate and say, at this place, this is the place where God delivered us so that we will always remember that it's only by God's grace that we've come this far. Here I raise my Ebenezer. I raise the rock of God's help to remember what it was like when I was destitute and then remember and recall how great it was when God saved me. Hither by thy help I've come. So here by God's help I'm here. We think it's a picture of the gospel. The rest of that verse says that Jesus sought me when a stranger, while I was wandering from the throne of God, he to rescue me from danger, he interposed his precious blood. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, you'll hear them say, I'm the Lord, God, God, I'm the Lord your God who delivered you out of the hand of Pharaoh, who delivered you out of bondage, as if to always be a reminder that as you rebel and God redeems, as you rebel and God redeems, he will never abandon But that promise, at times, is difficult to believe. And we get some real human emotions as to why, don't we? Distress, hunger, anger, and contempt. To the point that they believed that their real solution was not God who had delivered them over and over and over again. They believed that their solution was something else. They looked to the earth. They looked around them 
for comfort. And the result? Darkness. Utter and complete darkness. Do you get now why Christmas is a season of lights? Do you get why Christmas is a celebration of light? Now, this is a strange time uh, in, in, the, in the life of our culture. It's a strange time in, in our calendar where, where people who are Christians celebrate this thing on December 25th, and, but people who are not Christian also celebrate this thing on December 25th. And, and there's this strange convergence where, at least for this moment, people who are followers of Jesus and people who could care less about Jesus at least set aside some time or at least set aside some attention some space in their own brain to remember or think about the same kind of season. And they do crazy things. They put lights on their houses. Right? Now, we all know that the Bible says you don't put lights on your house before Thanksgiving. Right? We know this. It's that, trust me on this one. Okay? And you put white lights, not colored lights. Just me talking here. It's a season of lights. And there's custom, don't shake your head at me, don't. It's a season of lights. And the fact that you have an opinion about those lights kind of starts to tell us something, doesn't it? It's a season of lights. We light up trees. And we light up houses. We light up whatever we can. If you're the Griswolds, you light up everything, right? And there's a strange sense of convergence here, isn't there? To where on one hand, a celebration of just burning electricity for the sake of, for, for its own fun, our culture celebrates as Christmas, and just for this little season, opens the door to something that we celebrate that originated from the heart of God. Did you catch it? To find your hope in anything else other than God is to be plunged into utter darkness, thick darkness, gloom, and anguish. And for those of us, verse 1, who are Christian, we resonate with this deeply. It says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. you, you got to get this, because the world sees and senses darkness, but at least for this season, decorates their house for a reason they're not really sure about. They light candles, and we're not really sure why they're doing that. But for us, there's something else going on, because something came to that darkness. So, so back to the map. If you look at the northern parts of of, of what is Israel, this, this area where the Syrians at this point had partnered, there's a couple of places here, and there, there's some names that were mentioned right there in the first couple of verses. Zebulun, Naphtali. And then closer to the, to the sea over here, we find Galilee. Now that's important because whenever the Syrians and the Assyrians, the Babylonians and anyone else, when they came and took over God's people, I want you to notice what happened. They almost always came, whether they're Romans or anyone else, they almost always came from the north. Almost always. Almost every single time when God's people, by his judgment, rebel against him and are overtaken by the nations, they come from the north. As if to say, like, if, if you're kind of a part of God's people, but maybe not, the worst place to be is the furthest north. Because that's really where the outsiders are. That's really where the pagans are. That's really where the enemy dwells. But you and I celebrate a promise when the ministry of Jesus emerges, don't we? What do the Gospels tell us that Jesus did? After he went into the wilderness, was tempted, he came back and was, was delivered by the Holy Spirit, and he began teaching and preaching the good news of a coming kingdom. And where did he start? Where did he begin teaching and preaching and performing miracles? Galilee. Rather than starting at the most central place of religious life, which would have been Jerusalem, he started on the outskirts to show that you and me that a light has come into the darkness. 
the light has come specifically to the darkness. And Jesus in his ministry begins to fulfill this prophecy that we see here. In the same way that something's going to happen in chapter 9 that that at first glance is going to destroy people from the outermost regions, God's actually going to do something strange in those outermost regions to demonstrate something specific about his character. And we trust him. Those people, it says in verse 2, it says they walked in darkness, but it uses the, a different tense here. It says they walked in darkness, but now they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've got to get this, because a strange promise happens, and as we begin to kind of uncover what it is that Isaiah is saying to King Ahaz and the people of Israel, is really pretty powerful. You see, Ahaz wants a solution to a political problem. He wants a solution that will save his neck, that will keep his people from dying and his his kingship from failing. He wants a solution, and he looks to the Assyrians, to the earth, to find it. And we find that what he actually finds is deeper darkness. But the prophet Isaiah points to something else. God is actually going to do something And he's going to solve Ahaz's problem in a different way. You see, ultimate answers to our problems will be given in Jesus. No matter what the problem is, the ultimate answer, the ultimate solution is in Jesus. You see, we celebrate this season that Jesus came not from within, but from outside. The Christmas story isn't about how some people got together and conjured up a light for themselves. We see here the precursor to the Christmas story here in Isaiah is that the people were actually in darkness. Did you catch that word? In verse 2 it says they walked. That's a word that's used almost all the time in the Old Testament to, to symbolize not only just walking like with your feet, but living. Living. They, they didn't just walk in darkness. It wasn't just that They weren't literally walking around without the ability to see. They were living in a perpetual state of darkness. That word living implies something. That they were living in darkness, they were in it, and they had just learned to cope with it. They had given up hope of ever being in light. And they had learned to get by the best they could in darkness. This is important for us to consider because this is the context where God responds and sends a message of how he's going to restore these people. And his response is that he's going to do something. Verse 3, it'll be for their joy. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Did you get the theme of verse 3? Joy. Joy, rejoicing, joy. And they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That's a a callback for us. The story of Gideon is, is being referenced here in Midian. There was a man, the original Leonidas, the original 300. There was a man by the name of Gideon who God called out. And there was an army of 100,000 And it seemed to be that even though Gideon was outnumbered because he had a certain thousand or so people, God said, look, if you defeat these people, they're going to give you the glory. They're going to think you're a great leader and they're going to think you're a mighty warrior. But I can't have that. I need the glory. The glory doesn't need to go to you. That will be darkness. Don't look to the earth for this, but look to me. And so what does Gideon do? He whittles down his, God whittles down Gideon's army to where they're down to about 300 men. And 300 men conquer. Did you get that? God's going to do something and the enemies of God's people will be destroyed. And it will be a spectacle. It will seem like on that day that they're outnumbered, outmatched, and doom is on the way. It will seem like it is hopeless. Darkness will overtake, but just like a miraculous victory happened with Gideon, so also God will do something miraculous. How will he do it? 
for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to molt, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Did you catch that? God's going to do it such that now the things that the soldiers would have needed to fight their own battle are now going to become fuel for the fire. Did you catch that? Typically, you would expect like, hey, there's a great war coming. There's a great battle. Prepare yourselves. Get your boots on, we see here. Get, get, get all of the weapons you need. Get the garments that would be stained with the blood of your own enemies in victory. Get those ready because we're going to fight. But it says here that you're not going to need those. God's going to defeat the enemy. And then we come to the place where you might be more familiar. Four. Because at this point, you've got to be asking, wait, it's going to be like Gideon? It's going to be joyful? It's going to be miraculous? God's going to deliver us? How? By what means will God deliver us? What is it that God is going to do? How is it that God is going to comfort us? What is God going to accomplish for us? And it says in verse 6, the answer, four. To us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to dig into those names in the weeks to come. But right here, I want you to see what this might have looked like. Ahaz probably wished that God had given him a different answer. Ahaz probably wished that God was going to grant him a solution that looked more like he wanted. And God's response was that ultimately the solution to his problems was not a political one, was not an earthly or physical one. It was something he was going to accomplish in a child that was given, a son that was born. Ultimately, the problems that he faced had a solution in Jesus Christ. I want you to, to let that kind of marinate on you because we come every single week and we gather together and we sing that Jesus is a solution, right? We sing that Jesus is, is our reality. He's our Lord. He is sovereign. And on a regular basis, on a regular basis, I know you find yourself thinking, I really wish I had something else. And you come in here we gather and we bring our own sorrow, our own suffering, our own problems. We bring our own sin. And sometimes in our own selfish ways, we sit around and we say, I hope that Jonathan's going to give me the solution to my problems. I'm praying for a job. I need a new career. I'm praying for, for something to be fixed in my spouse. I'm praying for a spouse. I'm praying for financial help. I'm praying for physical healing. I'm, I'm praying for all of these things. And I recognize, friend, it probably seems fairly unsatisfying when I stand up here and in the midst of all your suffering, I say, Jesus is your one true hope. It's a strange and countercultural thing to believe, isn't it? Because God offers something here. God is doing something here that transforms even the way we celebrate when we gather together and the way that we celebrate Christmas, the incarnation, is that Jesus is sufficient both now and forever. You see, he paints a picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes, what we call Advent, the coming of Jesus. And the first time that Jesus comes is a preview for the second. And the first time that Jesus comes, he comes to give relief of the sin and death that hangs over us and gives us darkness. The darkness and the gloom of sin and death that hangs over us. Jesus came to destroy in his first coming. But his second coming, the thing that we're waiting for, he's going to come back and he's going to grant relief of suffering. He came to deliver us from sin, but he's going to return to deliver us from suffering. And what we have now is a season of waiting, a season of trusting and anticipating God's redeeming work. And I know that seems insufficient. Ever heard the phrase, slow as Christmas? 
right? Ever, ever heard someone say that you need to Google this one? It's kind of interesting. It's, one, it's like, like good Southerners that make up stuff. It's one of my favorites. Slow as Christmas. Who'd have thought somewhere deep in the South they stumbled upon a biblical view of Advent? Who'd have thought they'd stumble upon an idea that waiting for Christmas is actually something good? Well, you may experience it differently, right? You may experience it differently. You know when they start to put the Christmas decorations in the stores in July now, right? You seen this? It's still the middle of summer, and they're like, here, buy, buy lights, buy Christmas decorations. Right? They don't even let you finish your Thanksgiving dinner, and they're already bombarding you with Christmas. You get this. There's this sense in which we inflict upon ourselves a waiting, a, a sense of anticipation. We inflict upon ourselves. You got an Advent calendar, maybe? That's the way you celebrate it? Like you, Every day you open a day closer in the season of Advent, a day closer to Christmas? Isn't that strange? I could be wrong, but aren't we kind of torturing ourselves? This has played out in our family in a really weird way, and I regret this, and I want to push back against this. We have an elf on the shelf in our house, and I wish Santa would take him back. I'm going to choose my words carefully. Uh, I wish Santa would take him back because he, he comes at Thanksgiving. I don't know when he shows up at your house. He comes to torture us for weeks before Christmas and to torture my children. You're almost there. You're almost, we're almost, there. we're so close. You see, we do this. And I got to ask you, what is it that you're waiting for? What is it that you're anticipating? What is it that is slowly creeping up on Christmas? What is it that's coming that you're seeking to celebrate? Because I want to possibly give you a countercultural view of what Christmas is for us that Jesus is sufficient both now and forever, that the present we actually celebrate is Jesus. Did you see that word in, in verse 6? A child is born. I think, our, I think our culture would agree with us. Okay, this is Jesus' birthday. Happy birthday, Jesus. But then it says something interesting. It says a son, and then it uses the language of gift-giving. A son is given. And there is a gift that God has given to us. There is something that God has granted to us. Something that God has given that is sufficient both now and forever. And he uses relational terms to describe who Jesus is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. You see, what we believe is, and I would, I would invite you to consider is, is that life's greatest treasure is Jesus. Life's greatest celebration is the coming of Jesus. The greatest danger is that you'll replace Jesus with everything else. And this is a, an appropriate time of year to think about that, isn't it? I mean, just be honest with yourself about how you celebrate Christmas with your own family. Be honest with how the culture celebrates Christmas. Whether it's New, you know, whether it's, you know, Christmas Eve, you know, or whether it's Christmas Day, however you celebrate it. How many family gatherings will stop and contemplate the darkness of their own sin before Jesus pierced a shining light into it? You thought Christmas dinner was awkward already. Start talking about the darkness and gloom of your own sinfulness and reflecting upon how Jesus coming to redeem you is your only true hope. What other things we'll be looking for? Open presents. Well, all sorts of things we'll, we'll get excited about in this season. If there, if there ever was a time that was extremely distracting as a Christian, a, a time that was really difficult to grab the gospel and to hold it in our own hearts and our own consciousness and glorify God in its celebration, this is it. And I want to warn you because that's ironic. Because almost everyone else is celebrating Christmas in our culture but we speak a mystery that the greatest hope is actually Jesus, that it's sufficient. God is doing something amazing and His power is made manifest for us. And the awesomeness of Jesus reorients our problems. Even though we might be over overwhelmed, we actually think about how in Christ we have the approval of God. He's our wonderful counselor. So here's what I want to tell you 
in the problems that you face. And I want to lead this into the way that in a moment we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And someone's going to declare to you a mystery about the sufficiency and glory of Christ. We come in here like Ahaz wanting solutions. We gather together and we really, if we're honest, we want someone to kind of write us a check and fix our problems. We want somebody to fix the people around us. We, we usually do one of three things whenever things don't go our way. We, we substitute, we, we experience guilt and blame of ourselves, or we experience blame of others and cynicism. Have you experienced this? Whenever things are broken, we, we just try to fix it, right? Things are bad. I need to get a new one. I hate my job. Here's what I'll do. I'll just get a new one. I don't like the relationships around me. I'm going to get some new ones. I'm going to go AWOL on them and replace them. I don't like my spouse. I want another one. You heard this? This is our first response. This picture that we can just substitute what is bad and place in it what is good. The second thing we do is we experience shame and guilt and blame of self. This leads to despair. For some of you, that's your response. For some of you, you're quite inclined to hopelessness, regret, and resentfulness. And then there's others that this is where I relate more is you respond in blame of others. And it plays out in cynicism. Everything's bad. Things are bad for me because everything is bad. And what I want to ask you to consider is that in light of your suffering, in light of your pain, and in light of our illness, in light, in light of our despair and our gloom and darkness, is it possible that we were not created to find joy in this world at all? Is it possible that that gloom, that darkness, is meant to be the backdrop for the mighty work of God in Jesus? Is it possible that our suffering is meant to be a constant reminder that we do not belong here, that you and I were created and designed for a greater kingdom? Is it possible that those empty relationships you experience in your own life are meant to be a reminder that only Jesus can satisfy? Is it possible that our physical weakness is just a reminder of Jesus' victory? Is it possible that He is our substitute? He has borne our shame and He has healed the world. Is it possible that we weren't even created to find satisfaction in this world, but that we would look to a light that God has sent to grant us the satisfaction that only He can give? In a moment here, we're going to celebrate communion and someone's going to declare a mystery and we're going to go toward the end. We're going to, we're going to take up an offering and afterward we're going to stand and worship. And then as we worship, at, at your own pace, we're going to begin to work our way toward the back of the room and someone's going to have a piece of bread. And it will seem simple. It will seem insignificant, a piece of bread. How is that going to satisfy me, you ask? I'm hungry. It's almost, it's almost time for dinner. How on earth is, is a piece of bread going to grant me what I need? How, in or, how on earth is a piece of bread going to get me to dinner? And they're going to declare to you a mystery. 1 Corinthians 11 tells it this way. That Paul received from the Lord what he was delivering to us. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to his disciples, including Judas who would betray him, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant that is in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat it, as often as you eat this bread and as you drink this cup, get this, you proclaim a mystery. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Remember that word Advent? We proclaim the mystery that his death and resurrection is sufficient. And you and I, as we carry our burdens, you're going to go to the back of the room and someone's going to declare to you a mystery that Christ really is sufficient. 
that what he has accomplished for you on the cross really is enough. That he has not abandoned us and forsaken us, but he is with us. And he has borne our suffering and our shame so that we would experience joy. You'll be tempted in that moment to look to the earth, to look to your sin, to think about your own failure. I'll try again, you'll say. But remember Isaiah 8, that only leads to darkness. And instead, someone will guide you to look away from your own present situation, to look away from earthly joy to find a heavenly one. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have every spiritual blessing poured out for us. We have every single spiritual blessing. We have every single thing that we could possibly want. And we have it in you, Jesus. I know that in this moment, that is the most difficult thing to believe. I know that in this moment, we would we would rather take matters into our own hands and, and if we were honest, we, we really believe that we know better. We believe that our way is greater than yours. And so we look around us for pleasure. We look around us for comfort. We look to others for approval. Would you begin to stir in us in our own imaginations, the possibility that you have done something that is greater than anything we could find in this earth. Would you begin to show us that our desire to find joy in any other experience leads to darkness? Would you begin to remind us of the failure that comes from taking matters into our own hands, seeking glory for ourselves? Would you grant us the faith to trust that your sacrifice really is sufficient. Sufficient not just to deliver us from hell, but sufficient to deliver us from suffering. Sufficient to deliver us through the valley, the shadow of death. Sufficient to sustain us. May we declare this sacrifice. May we turn our hearts away from everything that would seek to draw attention from you and your death. And may we look to your cross, your sufficient and perfect sacrifice as our one true hope. In Jesus' name, amen.